friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Our study tonight is verses 14 and 15, but we'll again go back now for the third time and read 1 to 7, and the second time, 8 to 13. We sure want to hear God's promise, which comes in the midst of a curse, but it's a promise and it's a good one. We want to hear it in its context tonight as we've been looking at these early chapters of Genesis. What is the problem for which Jesus is the solution? I invite you to consider that tonight from God's word. Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. May he. Write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask for understanding tonight. 
We pray that you would teach us your word. We pray that by it, you would do our souls everlasting good, that you would lift up Jesus before our eyes and he would draw all to himself and be honored. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we consider this passage tonight, there is a glorious promise in it at verse 15 that comes in the midst of God's curse of the serpent, of Satan. And we'll look at that in a moment. But how did we get here to this, friends? Well, we've seen the introduction of sin and evil into God's good world. We've seen Satan entice Eve to to mistrust God and his goodness, to doubt that God had given them every good thing and withheld nothing that was good for them. In fact, we know that the the tree was a test. It was a test of obedience. Will you, the father was saying, will you live in my house as, as husband and wife? I brought you together. I made you. I've given you all good things. Will you live in my house and will you... Honor my commands. Will you listen to my wisdom? Will you believe me? Or will you go your own way and make your own rules and turn your back on me? That was the test, friends. And and of course, as we know, what we have seen is that Satan enticed them, telling them they would get godliness or godlikeness by rebellion. When God had already given them God-likeness, they were the likeness of God. They were the image of God on earth. They were exalted. They were glorious. And Satan twisted it and he lied to them and he uh, denied God's truth. And he said, oh, rebel and you'll get more and better. And it wasn't true. And what happened, friends? What did we see happen? They sinned. And then immediately they felt shame and they were embarrassed and they wanted to hide. They felt bad. They felt guilty. And and we saw, friends, that that they they were isolated from one another. Adam, where are you? And it's all about Adam. I heard. I hid. You know, I was afraid. Where's Eve? Oh, you know. Adam doesn't know. He's not talking about her. He's not thinking about her. They've, They've been alienated from one another and Adam blames her. For what he did. And Eve blames the serpent. And they both blame God. Oh the real problem here is you. Not us. And they're isolated and alienated from God now. They're hiding from him. They're afraid of him. We saw how this is in so many ways a picture of us as well. Adam is standing in here for us in the garden. This really happened to a real man. But we are not only in Adam and with Adam and fallen in him, but we are like Adam too. We won't take responsibility for our own sins. We won't confess and repent. We're hard-hearted. We're, we're trying to escape. The dog ate my homework, we say, about everything. And so we've seen the entrance of sin and evil into God's world. We've, we've seen, how did God respond to them? What did he do? He initially, he comes to them in the garden. He comes to them and instead of ignoring them, turning his back on them, instead of abandoning them or smashing them and crushing them, instead he comes with a question. And he woos them. Adam, 
Where are you? Do you realize where you are? I know where you are. Do you realize where you are and how you got there? Did you eat from the tree? Adam, you did. I know that you did. Own it. Come, my son, and confess and say, Oh, Father, forgive me. I have sinned. But no, that's not what, that's not what Adam will do. But God, in grace, wooing them. And we see that God speaks first to Adam, demonstrating his covenant headship responsibility. It was Adam who was ultimately responsible here, and he failed. And the serpent went to Eve first and, and deceived her. She believed a lie, and she thought she was going to be improved. But Adam was undeceived, and God comes to him first. He's responsible, and then he comes to Eve. And then here now we see God begin to mete out his punishments. And so these are the things that we've seen up to this point, friend. And we've seen, we've seen the, the ridiculous efforts that they made to cover themselves with fig leaves. And it wasn't going to be enough. They couldn't fix themselves in the way they needed to be fixed. It will take, friends, the life and death of the Son of God to make things right from this point on in this story. And the theological point of all of this, friends, is that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. That's Paul in Romans 5. And it is, it's bad news and it's good news. And unless you're going to know the good news that Christ came to succeed where Adam failed and to obey where Adam disobeyed, And to give you God's good things is a gracious gift that you have abandoned in Adam and with every breath of your life in rebellion. Unless you see that, that Christ is is the new Adam, the last Adam, the better Adam. Friends, you won't see the good news, but you've got to embrace the bad news to see the good and to feel it and to know that it's great. And so... These are some of the things we've seen. And now we begin at verse 14 and following through to the end of the chapter, God's punishments. Here, he begins with the serpent. Next week, we'll look at what he says to the woman and to the man. Here, to the serpent. And so what do we want to see tonight? We want to see the curse of the serpent and the first promise of the gospel. And I want you to see that tonight as we consider a few things. We're going to consider the the punishment of the evil one. We're going to consider the plan of God's grace. And we're going to see some practical applications of that for us as we think about ourselves as Christians or perhaps as non-Christians. So let me invite you to consider those three things. The punishment of the evil one. Go back now to verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this cursed, Are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, what are we talking about here? This is not an explanation of why people are afraid of snakes. And it's not an explanation of how snakes must have at one point had legs and then somehow, you know, they got their legs cut off and now they slither. I don't think that's the meaning here either. That's, that's not what's going on. The snakes, I believe, were snakes, and they slithered already. The, the reiteration of their slithering is to highlight now the humiliation associated with it. Dust they will eat, God says. 
And so when you see these snakes as well, we ought to be reminded of the fall. And as Matthew Henry puts it, the instrument of the devil's shame, share in the devil's punishment. Um, Here, there is a word about serpents, obviously. But as we've seen before in Revelation chapter 12, this serpent is either the devil in disguise or the devil uh, inside and taking possession of, or something we're not sure of, but we know that there's something more going on here than a talking physical snake. God here, we see, doesn't ask this serpent any question as he did Adam and Eve. He doesn't come to woo the serpent in the garden at all. He doesn't ask a question. He has, in fact, already been tried in the courts of heaven as a rebel, and thrown down, as Revelation 12 says. And there is no hope of pardon for him. There's no offer of forgiveness for him. God is not going to restore the devil. None of the fallen angels are ever offered even the possibility of redemption, but they fell and they have been confirmed in their state of rebellion. And listen, friends, that's so important for us to recognize. The freedom of God is being highlighted here. To to give amazing gifts of grace where he pleases and to withhold them as he intends. There was nothing that God made, that, that made God come to Adam and Eve and offer them grace and promise them a redeemer. He didn't owe that to them. It was not in any way a, a, a matter of justice that he should do that. Not at all. It's all of mercy only. He could have treated us just like he treated Satan and the fallen angels and confirmed us in our state of rebellion and turned his back forever on us. And he would not have been any less merciful, but he would have been just. And he would be just to do it. God's rescue then is a manifestation of his grace and of his favor. All deserve judgment. Some get mercy. The moment you think God owes you heaven, owes you salvation. The moment you think that, friends, you, you are saying For God to be just to me, he must give me that. But for God to be just to you, he ought to, in justice, give you what your sin deserves. So that's the first thing I want you to see here, friends. The punishment of this evil one and what God has offered to you is incredible. Now I want you to see the plan of that grace worked out in verse 15. As he speaks then these words to the enemy where he says, I will put enmity between and there's, there's three places where this enmity is going. Between you and the woman, and between your offspring, her offspring, and then also he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises uh, that there will be war on three fronts here. This, this, is, this is the language of enmity okay, comes from to be an enemy to. It's, it comes from a verb to be an enemy to. It's, it's, a, it's a state of war or a state of hatred, a state of antagonism. 
This is what God is saying he's going to do. Now notice the, that, the, where that is placed first, he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. What is God doing? What is he saying? He's saying to Satan, you think you have captured Eve for your rebellion and she has sided with you and she certainly did and that you have got her stuck now on your side against me. And God says, no, I will foil your plan. I will thwart your rebellion and I will now put her in a state of enmity with you. I will, God says here, I will not let Eve continue at peace with you in the rebellion against me, but I will break in and rescue her. That is what God is saying here. Listen, now, don't misunderstand. God has not created enmity here, hatred or war. It already exists in his universe, and that's a different discussion. But Eve and Adam are responsible for their enmity and they have already become at war with God. They've sided with the enemy. Now God's going to turn their heart, turn Eve's heart against the enemy of her soul. It's an incredible protection of God to her that he should graciously change her heart and rescue her. The friend of Satan And the enemy of God will now become the friend of God and the enemy of Satan. That is what God is doing here. As he breaks the power of evil in her life and frees her from enslavement to the devil's schemes. It's a glorious, glorious war that God does for her well-being. But there is war on a second front here, friends. God says, I will put enmity between two seeds. He says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Speaking of the devil's seed and her seed. Seed is the common word for lineage or for descendant or offspring. There are going to be two lines, in other words here, friends. Two lines of spiritual offspring. One after the manner of Satan and one after the manner of Eve here. People will either be for God or against God, either in Christ or out of Christ. We, we know, friends, what this cannot be. It cannot be physical lineage of the serpent. When he says, I will put enmity between your offspring, we know that Satan cannot bear physical children. No angel or fallen angel bears physical descendants. But Satan does have spiritual descendants who are human in this world. One can be, we might put it this way, of the enemy in the heart. One can, as Eve did, and Adam, side with the enemy in the rebellion. And God is saying here, not all of the physical offspring of Eve will be the spiritual seed of Eve. Some will be the spiritual seed of Satan. Now, does that blow your mind? Does that surprise you? Does that shock you? Can you believe that I said those kinds of things and that some of you are still sitting here? This is the 21st century. How can I say these things? Well, let me be clear, friends. We would never say these things if the rest of the Bible didn't make these things even more clear. Would you look for... Uh, uh, 
at first John chapter 3 verse 12 in the New Testament where the apostle John says speaking of Cain who murdered his brother he says Cain who was of the evil one and Jesus taught this very clearly when he spoke to the Pharisees the religious arrogant proud self-righteous religious Jewish leaders of his day in John chapter 8. We'll pick up a few verses there. In John 8, listen to this discussion Jesus has with them. There's more here, but in verse 39, uh, they answer Jesus, Abraham is our father, they say. We're of the physical descent of Father Abraham. That's our spiritual heritage too, is what they're saying. Now notice what Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. And they said to him, as you can imagine, confused. We just said our father was Abraham, and he says, no, 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 not. But you're doing what your father did. Notice what they say to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have... One father, even God. Now they're claiming God is their father. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And he goes on. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that in the heart, one can be aligned with the enemy and so be of the enemy. But God in his grace can make you to be of the Lord and be aligned with the Lord. And so uh, we see this. God is going to place enmity in their hearts against Satan. Though they come into this world with a sinful heart against God as all people do, God's not going to let them go the way of their own hearts and he's going to change them. And so we see what happens here. Or who, how, how might we characterize then the godly line, this line of the woman? In Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, the Bible characterizes them for you. If you were to pick up the reading at verse 17, it says this, And the dragon, that serpent, Satan, from the garden, that dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are the offspring of the woman against whom Satan is at war? It is those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's believers, friends, who have the seed of love in their hearts for Jesus, who've been changed by the grace of God. Let me, let me friends, this will help you understand your whole Bible. And as you read it, it will unfold the Bible for you. Let me just unpack this for a few brief moments, just by way of illustration, how these two lives, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, play out over the course of even the rest of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. 
If you have a Bible, flip around with me here just for a moment. Just, just track this, friends. Who are those who are born in enmity against God and remain in league with Satan, whom God leaves unchanged? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, you're going to see Cain. Cain, verses 1 to 17, the first murderer who killed his brother Abel, because as John says, he was of the evil one in his heart. Then you're going to see, right after that, Lamech, verses 19 to 24, the story of Lamech, one of Cain's descendants. There are actually two Lamechs in the Bible. One's redeemed and one is not. This is the one who's not. This guy is the first polygamist. We're going to study this passage later. He's the first polygamist. He takes two wives. He boasts of evil in killing a man, even killing a boy who struck him. In other words, returning, returning murder for insult. And he threatens his wives with violence. Okay, this is the seed of the serpent. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we see again, uh, in the days of Noah, how are people described? Look at verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a description, friends, of the seed of the serpent. Chapter 9, verse 22, we see again, this time we see Ham, the father of Canaan, Ham, the descendant of Noah, who, it says in verse 22, Saw the nakedness of his father. Noah got, or, uh, his father got, Noah got drunk. And Ham, it says, saw the nakedness of his father. And he boasts of it to his brothers. This vile thing that, that studies suggest means either that he had sex with his father when his father was drunk. Or he engaged in sexual intimacy with Noah's wife, his own mother, in incestuous relations. And then boasts of it arrogantly. Uh, That's in keeping with Leviticus chapter 20 verses 20 and 21 where it talks about not uncovering the nakedness of another person. It was a kind of sexual sin. Chapter 10 verses 8 through 10, you get Nimrod. Nimrod, a mighty one on the earth, a man hunter. (laughs) Uh, He's a mighty hunter in opposition to the Lord. His name means let us rebel rebel and he founds Babylon in chapter 11 verses 1 to 9 the people gather into one place in that famous scene the tower of Babel what do they do they build themselves a great tower into heaven as they think why to make a name for themselves and they throw off God's purposes for them to be scattered across the earth and fill it now, that, that's just in Genesis 1 through 11. You get again and again this picture of the seed of evil at work in humanity. Following in rebellion. But you get this alternating scene of those who by grace have been changed. So going back to Genesis chapter 4. After Cain and Lamech, the, the chapter closes with a note of hope. God gives Seth to Eve after Abel dies, is killed. And it's from Seth, it says... Verse 26, that the line of the woman descends, it says that it it is then under Seth that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Public worship of the Lord and calling upon him to be saved is here. Or Enoch chapter 5, Enoch walks with God, verses 22 to 24. He has intimate friendship with God and then he's taken up into heaven. 
Or chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the godly Lamech, the different one, who's the father of Noah. And in faith, believing God has a special plan for his son, he names his son Noah rest because he will give us rest. Or chapter 6, very strikingly, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Noah. Who is Noah? What line is he? Noah, it says at verse 8, found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. But that's that's the word for grace, unmerited favor in the face of his demerits. Now look, I know the next verse says that uh, at the end of it, uh, that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And you might think that what the Bible is telling you is that Noah was such a good guy, such a godly, obedient, righteous man, that God favored him. But that's not how you should read that story. If you, if you decided one day you wanted to read the Bible, uh, you know, chapter by chapter, okay? Don't use your English translation to decide what chapter divisions are. Remember we talked some weeks ago about how the Bible has its own chapter divisions? Chapter 9 is a, is a chapter division. These are the generations of Noah. That's the chapter division. So in other words, you were reading late one night. You got to chapter 6 verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and you said, I'm done with my chapter. You closed your book, and you fell asleep. The next day, you picked up at verse 9, and you read that Noah was a righteous man. Why was he righteous? Because he'd been graced. He wasn't graced because he was righteous. He had been changed by God. And so we could go on and on, friends, in the Bible, these alternating pictures of the seed of the enemy and the seed of the woman. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. This is the story of Moses and Pharaoh. This is the story of David and Goliath. This is the story of Joseph and Herod. Herod who wants to destroy all the baby boys because he doesn't want the one boy to come who's going to rule and reign because Satan doesn't want that. And Joseph protects his son. And so we see, friends, this is the story, not just of Genesis and not just of the whole Bible. It's the story of mankind. This is your story. You are of one kind or the other. And if you are of the enemy, there is good news. You can be of the Lord and spared. But there's war on a third front, friends. Look at it. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. There's a promise that as it closes, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. What's going on there, friends? A single male offspring of the line of the woman will strike a decisive mortal blow against Satan. While Satan himself strikes a wounding yet ultimately not victorious, ultimately ineffective blow against this male. This is the war between Christ and Satan. Third person, masculine, singular, he shall crush your head, God says to Satan. One is coming, and as we know, John, 1 John 3, verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God came into the world was to destroy the works of the enemy. And so here's Jesus, the champion, Jesus, the warrior. Jesus, the victorious king, standing, as it were, on the head of his enemy like like those Old Testament kings so often did. Why did they do that? It It was to display that they were victorious. We win. We crush your head. 
That's Jesus crushing the head of Satan. And yet, being bruised by him, wounded by him in the process. At the very moment of the decisive victory when Jesus is hanging on a cross, as we read in Colossians 2, Jesus is on that cross. That is the very moment when Satan thinks he's got everybody aligned against Christ. The religious leaders, the Romans, the common people, crucify him, they cried. And Satan thought, I win, I win. And of course, this is the very moment when Christ is victorious because in weakness, he suffers for us and he frees us by taking what we deserve, by dying our death, by suffering God's wrath and by releasing us from the, the, the law that stands against us, condemning us. And he, he as in Colossians it says, he, he puts to open shame the rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces of darkness. As, as they stand before God and accuse us and say, you must not be merciful to this person. You cannot give them heaven. Jesus stands up and says, oh, Father, you can Because I have stood in their place. And so this is, friends, this is the first promise of the gospel. And would you just consider that it was given in the Garden of Eden, immediately after the rebellion, and all of humanity has always had this promise that God would rescue people by a redeemer. It's a glorious thing, friends. Right from day one, God enacts his eternal and everlasting plan to send Jesus for us. The the irony here is that the woman who had first been seduced and so used as a tool to bring sin into the world, now the Lord will use a woman to bring the Savior of the world into the world. And as Matthew Henry, old commentator, put it, by faith in this promise, we have reason to think that our first parents and the patriarchs before the flood were justified. This is how they were saved, friends, as all have, as any have ever been saved by this Redeemer coming for us. Now, let me make just a few quick words of application, friends. What does all this mean then? Well, one of the things it means for Christians, I want to speak directly to you, is this. What does it feel like to belong to Christ? What does it feel like? It feels like war. You have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in you, who has begun to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And that feels like there is a powerful struggle going on in your life. And sometimes we think that our struggle against sin and evil is a mark that we are lost. And the devil certainly wants you to believe that. He wants you to think. He wants to whisper in your ear, oh, you struggle with sin again. You fell again. You gave in to temptation again. Well, of course you're not a Christian. (laughs) But that isn't true at all necessarily, friends. It will feel like war because you have begun to hate evil. And then when you do it, you've begun to hate that you did it. Because you've begun to love what's right in a way that you never did before. The war within, between evil and good, between the Holy Spirit at work in us and the flesh set against the sinful nature that has not yet been wholly made perfect. That is a mark that we are alive spiritually. The spirit is at war with the flesh. Sin has been dethroned. It doesn't rule you. It's not your authority. It's not your master. But sin has not died in you. It still lives in you. And it's fighting a guerrilla war 
against the Lord and his holy commands. One of the evidences that you are on the Lord's side is you have begun, shall we say it, to hate yourself. (laughs) To hate your sins. To hate what you think and do and desire and say. Because you long to be like Jesus. That's a good thing. So you are in trouble, friends, when you are not fighting sin. It's a wonderful story of an abusive farmer. Abusive farmer who had uh, abused his workers, abused his animals. He had the foulest language that he'd, he'd speak to his wife and kids with. He was cynical about religion. And during a time of revival in his town, the Spirit of God changed him and he became a new creature in Christ. And for a few weeks, everything had changed. I mean, it was easy living, you know, whole new frame of mind. His wife was amazed. He had no more abusive language or behavior. Everything seemed to be cleaned up. He didn't mistreat any of his animals. And then a few weeks go by. And in a moment of frustration, he breaks into that old rage. And suddenly he's back into his old form of behavior, speaking the same way, spewing vulgarities. Mean, harsh words, and he rushes into the kitchen as his wife's preparing a meal, and he throws himself on the table, and he says, in despair, weeping uncontrollably, she says, what's the matter? And he says, I, have, I am no different than I was before. And she says to him, oh, you are very different. You used to say all those horrible things, and you didn't care that you did. And would you look at yourself now? You're weeping in remorse and repentance. That's the sign of grace at work. But friends, if we could be at peace with sin in our lives and we can just kind of shrug our shoulders and say it's no big deal. Everybody does it. This is the way I've always been. I love what I love and who cares really? And, you know, Jesus loves to forgive people and that, you know, that covers me. And if you could just go on in kind of arrogant, high-handed sin without repentance. Now, I know you're going to sin, but without repentance, that does not speak well of the state of your soul. The mark of a Christian is that you are at war, a God-designed enmity against the enemy of your soul. And so believers pray, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me my debts and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And we pray like David, keep your servant from presumptuous or willful sin. Let them not rule over me. Because I know that they could if I gave myself to them. So don't let it happen, Lord. And we sing that verse of uh, come thou found. We sing, oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you for Jesus, the great warrior, the victorious king and champion and redeemer. Oh, redeem us in every way. Come with great power. Change us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.